You might recall that the most, I think it still is, the most favorite movie of all time, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, Jimmy Stewart uh, plays George Bailey, an ordinary guy from Bedford Falls. But you remember what makes George Bailey's wonderful life, such a wonderful life, and that is that he has friends. But how many people would describe their life as wonderful because of friendships? How many people do you know have deep friendships? The latest statistics and surveys tell us there's a crisis when it comes to deep, long-lasting friendships. In 1985, the average American had about three friends defined as a person he could confide in. In 2004, 19 years later, the average American said, I have two friends. And what do we come now to 2023, 2024? There's an even greater loss and intensified level of loneliness. The average American have fewer and fewer friends. This morning, we dealt with this matter of friendship, and we argued from one basic fundamental or axiom, we need friends. Friends are not luxuries, but they are necessities. And there's no exception to the rule. Everybody should have friends. It's across the board. This is for everybody. It is a universal need. And the last session, we dealt with the whole matter of why we can save that. Three major anchor bolts that explain why we need friends. First anchor bolt, the anchor bolt of creation. We are made in the image of God. And God is a personal and a relational God. It's not good for man to be alone. The second major anchor bolt that explains why we need friends is the fall of man. Sin has deformed, disabled, and damaged us, all of us, emotionally, psychologically, and physically. And we need help. We need support and encouragement. We need exhortation. And the Bible does say that a friend is born for adversity. Third anchor bolt we gave, why we need friends, is in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, I reference John Bunyan in telling us the story of Christian, his way to the celestial city. He had friends, hopeful and faithful. So again, we need friends. If you're going to grow and mature as Christians, if you're going to be wise, you have to walk with the wise. Now we come back to the subject of friendship. Instead of using the matter of anchor bolts, we're going to use the three telescopes, okay? Another sort of big picture perspective or long distance perspective on friends. Here's what I have in terms of three telescopes. The patterns for true friendship. The patterns for true friendship. The values of true friendship and then the graces of true friendship. The patterns, the values, and the graces of true friendship. So let's start with the patterns of true friendship. Let's start with a simple question, what is a friend? And from a 
one perspective, that's not an easy question to answer. Sort of like asking the question, what is a mother? And there could probably be a thousand different answers to that question. But if we stick with our Bibles and go looking for the word friend, we find out that it comes to us in different ways. There's sort of different answers to that question. The word friend is not always used exactly the same in our Bibles. Sometimes it's flexible or you could say it's elastic. The word, for example, can be used to describe a casual acquaintance. My next door neighbor could be called my friend. The word friend can also apply to both non-Christians and Christian relationships. Jesus was called a friend of publicans and sinners. He spent time with people who were still in a state of condemnation, unregenerate people, and some of them never came to know Jesus. Remember the rich young ruler? He walked away. He rejected Jesus, and it says Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him. Jesus sought to befriend him. Jesus even used the word friend when he spoke to Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane. The man betrayed Jesus in the worst of ways, and while he was never a true friend to Jesus, Jesus never stopped being a friend to him. And so what you read this in Matthew 26, verse 49, And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Clearly, he was not a true friend. Not a true friend in the sense of John 15, a friend who obeyed Jesus. But Jesus treated him kindly and graciously. Now, if someone were asked the question, can a Christian have friends with non-Christians? I would say yes, but be careful. Friendships can be wonderfully positive in your life. They can influence you in terms of your moral direction in a wonderful, positive way but they can also be bad. And here's why your best of friends, that's how I would put it, your best of friends should be Christian friends. The ones you spend time with, the ones you grow to know and love, those should be people who know the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the friendship that is most emphasized in the Bible. It's not casual, it's not superficial, it is spiritual. You could call Christ-centered friendships, where hearts are knit together, not over football or over your favorite TV program, but there's a depth of spiritual affinity. Deuteronomy 13, verse 6, says, A close friend is one who is as your own soul. A close friend is one who is as your own soul. And I do think we see that in our Bibles. There's some wonderful patterns of those very kind of relationships. A Ruth and a Naomi, a Moses and a Joshua, a David and a Jonathan. The Apostle Paul had Timothy as a deep soul friendship. 
Listen to how Paul describes his friendship with Timothy. He describes it in this way, Philippians 2, verse 20, For I have no one like him, like-minded, no one like Timothy. But here's the first thing I would say then, as far as patterns for friendships in the Bible, they can be both exclusive and inclusive. You should have a big door and a very narrow door when it comes to your friends. You can be a friend of anyone, even sinners who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. But your narrow door should be those who know the Lord and who would help you in your walk with the Lord. Second pattern we can observe from our Bibles with respect to friendships is that they are marked with a wonderful diversity as opposed to a sameness. A diversity as opposed to a sameness. Most friendships begin from a point of similarity or commonality, a shared interest, a hobby, a career path, a common enemy, an educational philosophy, a social issue, a political interest, what you could call our one-dimensional friendships. They prioritize sameness. That's often where friendships start. Engineering college students spend time with engineering college students. Guys on the college football team spend time with guys on the college football team. The people who come from the same culture or from the same generation. Excuse me. Millennials. Spend time with millennials, Generation X with Generation X, homeschoolers with homeschoolers. Those are what I would call one-dimensional friendships. Not bad, but they can curtail and limit and not always enrich you and develop your graces. You can lose what I would call the iron-sharpen-iron dynamic of a friendship. And we do see diversity in our Bible. Think of Jesus and his 12 disciples. They were different, right? One was on this side of the political spectrum. He was a former zealot, a, a radical who wanted to overthrow Rome. And then you had a tax collector who was sort of kissing up to Rome. You had four fishermen, most of them from Galilee. You had different personalities. There were sons of thunder. There was doubting Thomas. Think of the chronological difference between Paul and Timothy. When we think of friendships, I think most times, most of us think in terms of peer friendships. I think we should think beyond that. We should give weight, considerable weight, to having older friends. Not just same-aged friends. I think Timothy and Paul was that kind of a friendship, a mentoring or a discipling 
aspect to that friendship. But I'm sure that Timothy learned a lot and grew a lot because of that older mentoring friendship. Going back to David and Jonathan, it was clear. It went down deep. Look how it's described. If you look back at that chapter that was read earlier, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. But there's a significant difference, isn't there, between these two guys? Jonathan was raised on the lap of luxury, royalty. He, he, was, he was a prince, and the other guy was a shepherd boy. And just like there can be diversity of friendships in terms of culture, in terms of background, in terms of age, there's also a diversity in terms of love, in terms of affinity. Think again of David and Jonathan. David describes his friendship with Jonathan with superlatives. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 26, he says, My brother Jonathan, very pleasant, extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. It was a relationship of unusual Depth. Their hearts had been knit together. You think of our Lord Jesus. He loved all those disciple friends, no question. But some obviously went deeper. He was particularly close to Peter, James, and John, wasn't he? They spent more time with him. They were, they were the three guys that he went up on top of that mound of transfiguration. They were the, the three men that he brought into the inner sanctuary of Gethsemane. Those were the three men that he bore his heart to when he was suffering from that trauma in the garden. And there's only one disciple who is described as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That was John. I think five times in the Gospel of John, John describes himself in that way. Friendships can go deeper. We can have a greater affinity, a deeper affection, deeper levels of communication, deeper levels of transparency. That's the first point, the biblical patterns for true friendships. The second telescopic perspective on friendship, the spiritual values the spiritual values of true friendship. Now, I do believe that the friendship of David and Jonathan receives the most ink uh, in the Old Testament. It's given the highest definition or profile in the Bible, and we do learn a lot from this particular friendship. Sometimes uh, we learn more, not so much by being taught, but by, uh, by actual example, and having flesh and blood set before us. And to appreciate that friendship and its depth, we kept sight of both of those men. It might not have been the first time. I don't think it was, because David had been brought into King Saul's household prior to this, so they obviously had known one another. But we catch a beautiful sight of that friendship in 1 Samuel chapter 18, David, the shepherd boy, steps out of the shadows. Almost overnight, he's become famous. 
He slayed the giant Goliath. And David not only gains victory over the Philistine enemy, but he gains a friend. Look again at 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. David here in the fresh aftermath of victory, still holding the severed head of Goliath in his hand. This is when and where the friendship is forged. Their souls, look at the language, their souls were knit together, literally chained together, welded together, forged together. Think of a a beautiful tapestry. If we believe that God is behind every good thing, every beautiful thing, and then this is ultimately God knitting their hearts together. He's the divine weaver. I think it's Hugh Black in his book on friendship. He calls it the miracle of friendship. But what were some of the strings that knit these hearts together? Well, for one thing, they were fighting against the same enemy, the Philistine. If you go back a few chapters into 1 Samuel 14, you'll see Jonathan. He steps onto the battlefield. 1 Samuel 14, verse 6, is what Jonathan says. Let us go over to the garrison of those uncircumcised. He's talking about the Philistines here. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. When Jonathan picks up his sword and goes onto the battlefield, he's thinking about God. He's trusting not in the arm of flesh. And David was very much the same, wasn't he? When David goes up against Goliath, that's clearly his worldview. It's a God-centered worldview. Back in 1 Samuel 17, going toe-to-toe with Goliath, there's no sense of self-reliance on the part of David. Listen to what he says. Verse 45 of 1 Samuel 17, I come to you in the name of the Lord, of the host of the Lord, of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. They were fighting the same enemy. As Christians, do we fight the same enemy? The devil, the world, sin, that should tie us together our relationship as Christians. You see, their friendship was glued together with something stronger and bigger than volleyball, ping pong, rock climbing, video games. Both soldiers a passion for the glory of God. God's glory was more important than their own glory, and that is captured in Jonathan's actions. Look again at 1 Samuel 18, verse 3. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. David had just slain Goliath, And you could say, Jonathan now slays an even greater giant. What is that? Personal ambition. Self-interest. Both men were committed to the glory of God. 
And both men put to death personal glory and ambition. And remember again who Jonathan is. He's Prince Jonathan. Prince Jonathan. And we see that Jonathan will have to pay a price, won't he? To be a friend of David. He's going to have to go up against his own flesh and blood father. When the dark clouds come into our lives, that's when most friends lose their staying power. I think Job's friends were, were kind of those kinds of friends. When, when adversity came into David's life, they didn't show themselves to be Job's friends, but more like Job's torturers and accusers. A friend is born for adversity. The best of friends have a value system shaped by the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of self. You could say that those first three petitions in the Lord's Prayer shape their value system. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Not my kingdom, not my will, not my name. The patterns of true friendship, the values of true friendship, thirdly, the graces of true friendship. The graces of true friendship. When What graces were shining bright in the life of David and Jonathan? When you think of their friendship, what graces are highlighted? Well, I think at least three of them. What are they? Number one, faith. Faith. In his confession, the great theologian Augustine writes of a dear friend he had before he came to faith in Christ, although Augustine and his friend were very close, he makes a distinction that true friendship must be Christ-centered. It must have Christ at the center. Listen to what he says. This is Augustine. No friends are true friends unless you, my God, Bind them fast to one another through that love which is sown in our heart by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And faith, faith is a grace. The Christian life begins with faith. We believe on Jesus and we are justified by faith. Faith is what you could call a starting block grace. You begin the life, but it also shapes it also controls the whole of your life. You live the life of faith. You walk by faith. You fight the fight of faith. And there's no question David had faith. You go to Hebrews chapter 11, that great faith chapter. David's name is mentioned, but as soon as it's mentioned, he gives a series of exploits, and almost every one of them points us to David, who through faith conquered enemies. That's David. Who through faith enforced justice. That's David. Who through faith escaped the sword? That's David. Who through faith wandered in deserts? That's David. Who through faith lived in caves? That's David. David was a man of faith. And when you think of another grace that marked and distinguished this friendship, I would say the second grace is humility. Faith, but also humility. And here's where J Jonathan shines. David shines in terms of his faith, 
I believe Jonathan shines in terms of his humility. Jonathan strips himself of his robe. It's a royal robe. He hands over his sword and his shield to his friend David. We often think of David, I do anyways, as a type of Christ. He is a type and a shadow of Jesus Christ. Jesus is called the son of David. And I think personally that David, more than any other Old Testament saint, gets us ready for Jesus. In terms of his sufferings, in terms of his trials, in terms of his enemies, in terms of his courage, in terms of his boldness. But Jonathan mirrors Christ in terms of his humility. Jonathan is willing to give up his crown for his friend. Think of what Jesus gave up. He humbled himself even unto death. And we live in a world that is obsessed with self, self glory. Self-promotion, self-indulgence. I, I, I'm sure some of you have heard the, the name of the title of that book by Dr. Carl Truman. The Rise and the Triumph of Self, Modern Self. That's his whole argument. We're living in the, the most narcissistic age in human history. It's all about self. It's hard to find friends or be a friend if your life is centered on you. For friendships to survive, you have to be willing, like Jonathan, to step away from the microphone and the camera. Jonathan was willing to do that without batting an eyelash. Sort of like John the Baptist. He was willing to decrease that Christ might increase. The chief graces that shape a biblical friendship, faith is one of them. Humility is another one. I would put right at the top of the list, I would call it the rooftop grace, is love. That's the third one. That's the third one. 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. Go back there again. You'll see for yourself. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Again, verse 3. Look at the emphasis here again. 1 Samuel 18, verse 3. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved them as his own soul. Chapter 20, verse 17. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love, for he loved, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And later when David laments Jonathan's death, something of a eulogy is given by David when he thinks of his brother or his friend who is dead. And David talks about that love that was even beyond women. 
Now, some people put a shadow on that. I realize that. But David is not weeping for a lover. He shared his bed with. But a friend he shared his life with. A friend loves at all times. And David knows Jonathan loved me at all times. Through all the trials, all the turmoil, the betrayals, the multiple marriages, David running for his life as a fugitive, David could always, always count on his friend Jonathan. Theirs was the truest and the deepest kind of friendship that endured adversity. In 10 or 15 years, maybe 20 years later, David shows his loyal love, what we call Hesed love, that steadfast love when he brings Jonathan's son, remember, Mephibosheth, into his own household. He's a cripple, and David is willing to have him sit at his table, and he befriends him because of Jonathan, his friend. He keeps his covenant with Jonathan. There's a story, a real true story. World War I. Two men listed together. They were shipped overseas together. They fought side by side in the trenches. They crawled through barbed wire. They fought in the same foxhole together. And during one attack, one of the men was critically wounded and was dying out there in what they call dead men's land where, where there's barbed wire and their bullets are whizzing past your head left, right, and center. And this brother, this friend of this man, wanted to go get his friend out there in that place where all the barbed wire was. And he was dying. It looked suicidal. And he wanted to go. He even said to the Sarge, I want to go rescue my friend. And the sergeant pulled him back and said to the soldier, it's too late. You'll only get yourself killed. Well, as soon as the sergeant turned his back, the young officer went over the bank, went after his friend. He brought him back. He was dead in his arms. And this guy named Jim was critically wounded. And the sergeant was both angry and deeply moved. And he said to this young officer, what a waste. He's dead and you're dying. And without maybe his last breath, Jim said to the sergeant, it was worth it. When I got to him, the only thing he said was, I knew you would come. That's a friend born for adversity. There is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Friendship has a cost factor. It, it lives under the shadow of the cross. But here's the question. Why is friendship so hard? Or what keeps us, at least so many of us, from having 
those depths of friendships, Jonathan, David-like friendships. I think everybody would say, I, I, I want a friendship like that. But to have a friendship like that, I think we have to recognize that there's a lot of negative forces, powers, that militate against a friendship like David and Jonathan. That friendship, both men were willing to fight the enemy from within and the enemy from without to have that kind of friendship. And there are several things I believe as Christians we have to fight against, challenges that we face if we are going to have deep friendships. I would call four strong cultural winds are blowing. And a lot of people get swept aside by these powerful winds. What are they? What are, some of the, what are some of the depth killers that keep us from deep relationships? Let me suggest four of them in closing. Busyness. Busyness is probably the the biggest problem people have today when it comes to maintaining, it comes to keeping friendships. And you folks, most of you are what, high school, late high school, early college. These are probably the best days for making friends because you have more time on your hands, believe it or not. Once you get married, have children, all the extracurricular activities that kids often have, life gets a whole lot busier. This is often the big complaint. I'm just too busy. I've had people tell me that. I'm too busy for friends. Between work and family, I just don't have the time. Where do I get the time for my friends? There's just not enough hours on the clock. I would say that's a big challenge. But if you believe in the importance of friendship, then it seems to me you've got to pray for grace to overcome the challenge. You have to find ways to spend time with your friends. Second major tidal wave depth killer, I believe, that is affecting friendships today, perhaps in terms of close friendships, depth of friendships more than any other thing. It's the world of technology. Technology. Technology can be a good thing. It can be a good thing to help us maintain our friendships. Technology is a gift. It can be a gift or it can be a curse. But if your friendship relies totally and completely upon sending emails and sending texts, it's like snacking or eating fast processed food as opposed to a full five-course meal. Technology depersonalizes communication. Can two people, can two people get married 
say their vows by way of a screen internet connection and have a Zoom marriage. Never actually sit down in the same room, never see each other eyeball to eyeball, never hold hands and never kiss. Would you want a friendship like that? I don't think so. And yet lots of people, that's all they have. Those digital, internet kind of friendships. It's interesting that Paul talks a lot about face-to-face. I long to see you face-to-face. He also talked about a holy kiss. There's a physicality to friendships. Third major tidal wave or tsunami, powerful dynamic in our society that is keeping us from the depth of friendship and why so many friendships lie in the shadows or the shallows, and that is mobility. Busyness, technology, mobility. On average, every two to three years, people are moving from one town to the next, from one city to the next. My father, I I told you my testimony, was a mining engineer. We moved, I think, seven times growing up. And every time my dad made a move, it was a career move. Most people move for jobs and careers to climb ladders, to get more money. Even pastors do that. Bigger church, more influence, more money. But if you want long-term friendships and relationships, I would at least ask you to rethink. Rethink why you move, when you move, where you move, and if you and I are prioritizing friendships and relationships over jobs and careers, there would be less mobility. I'm convinced of that. Making friends is more important than making money. And the last thing I would say in terms of some of the powerful dynamics or negatives and reasons why people have a lack of depth in terms of friendships. What other thing militates against a depth of friendship? I believe it's triviality. Triviality or superficiality. Dr. J.I. Packer, uh, he passed away, what, three or four years ago. He 
traveled the globe and he described the evangelical world as 3,000 miles wide and one inch, one inch deep. He says the crisis he felt in most of evangelicalism is superficiality. Think of the great hymns of the faith getting substitute for a lot of ditties. People are pulling back from what I would call a full-orbed Sabbath day. Someone has called it a McSabbath after McDonald's. Just get in there, get out. Get a fast food, and I'm good for the rest of the day. And if you put yourself in a church context where all you are exposed to are sermonettes, no significant treatment of doctrine, no expository preaching, then I'm afraid you will be a very superficial person. And the lack of spiritual depth means there's going to be a lack of depth of friendship. You can't separate the two. So instead of a deep friendship, what do people do? They gravitate towards superficial, digital, Facebook, consumer friendships. Spiritual depth in a friendship will only come as you have spiritual depth with Christ. It means going deep with God, deep with Christ, deep in the gospel, deep in your understanding of who God is, who Christ is, and even what sin is. And if you and I want deep friendships, if you want to be a deep person yourself, that will only happen as you grow and hunger more for Jesus and know him as Savior and Lord. Wasn't that the great ambition of the Apostle Paul? To know him. To know him. And to share in his sufferings and the power of of his resurrection. It's interesting when you go back to the deepest theological book in the Bible, which is the book of Romans, right? Read the last chapter. You know what it's full of? Names. 28 names that the Apostle Paul knew, people he knew. Several people, he calls them the beloved. Think three times. Beloved, beloved, beloved. The Apostle Paul had deep friendships.
If you and I want deep friendships, we have to go deep with Christ. You have to know him. You have to spend time with him. How much time do you spend in your Bibles? How much time do you spend praying? If he's your friend, you've got to talk to him. If he's your friend, you've got to listen to him. The depth of friendships depends to a large degree upon your depth of spirituality and how deep you go with God. That would be my last final exhortation. Grow in your knowledge of your Savior. Grow to love him more, serve him more, and grow in all of those graces that we just talked about. Faith, humility, and love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we again ask you to be merciful and gracious to us, to all these young people as they are at a critical stage in their lives. We pray, Lord, that you would grace them with good, solid, deep friendships, that you would impress upon their hearts and their minds the need for them to grow in their love for your Son, that they would be able even to say like the Apostle Paul, this one thing, this one ambition I have in life, to know him, to share in his sufferings, and to know the power of his resurrection. Help us all, Lord, to grow in our holiness, to grow deeper in our relationship with one another. And we do pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.